Again, I'm Corey Bushonic. I'm the growth pastor here at Fellowship of the Rockies, and it's always a privilege to just be able to share God's Word with you. And I was thinking over the last week or two what it looked like to really dive into God's Word in such a way that we kind of move beyond uh, our church history. Maybe the time that you have spent in church, maybe it's been short, maybe it's been long, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe today's your first time. Uh, But for me, as I was looking at it, what uh, in my study allows me to move beyond some of the childhood understanding of Scripture? Uh, You know what I'm talking about, that so many of our children's stories, it's amazing how we've taken moments in history that were powerful illustration of God's glory, of God's presence, and we've turned them into children's stories. I mean, some of the most graphic moments in history, we've turned R-rated moments into G-rated moments. I mean, think about it for a second. I went to Stacy this week, and I said, Stacy, you got any, got any great children's books back here I could use? And first one she gives me is Samson. Now, I don't know if you know Samson really well or not, but Samson was a guy that, through a number of different sexual encounters, actually allows himself to get seduced by a woman for him to share the secret of God's divine power in his life, which is rooted in his hair. And through these encounters, they shave his head, they remove his power, they throw him into prison, they gouge his eyes out, and in the last few moments of his life, they stick him on the portico. They're in the porch with the Philistines in this Colosseum, and he prays one more time, God, give me the strength, and he uses his strength to push out the columns And it only takes his life, it takes the life of a thousand other Philistines. Great children's material, you know? It's it's one of those things that for me, I look at it and we have the songs, you know, Father Abraham had many sons and many fathers. And you're like, man, what does he listen to? I have no idea what song that is. You know, we have all these different children's songs and these books. I mean, she had, I don't know if these were for me when I'm a senior or me when I'm a child with the print of the size of these things. I was looking through this and I realized Noah... I mean, here's an account in history that man, God, God, because of his creation's actions, because of men and women's actions, he flooded the entire earth and took the lives of all humanity. And we have songs like, Give God the glory, glory, rise and shine, and give God the glory, glory. He built the arky, arky, they got muddy, muddy. You know, we run through these songs like it's... it's it's childhood stuff. We got, we got Moses. Now, Moses is great because here we have a story about God dealing with a nation that wouldn't let his people free to go and worship in the land that he had for them. And so he sends these plagues, these, these plagues that look like darkness in the land and turning the blood to water and the gnats and the frogs and all these different things until the final plague comes and he kills the firstborn male child of an entire nation. And we've got great stories about it. We've got, we've got these, great, uh, these great stories that when we read through them and we look at them, we realize that, man, this was, this was powerful moments. This was, this was God displaying his might. Do we move beyond really understanding exactly what's there, though? Hmm. We chalk it up to teenage songs now. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, oh, let my people go. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, really, this is... This is where we've come to with Moses. Good old David and Goliath. Here's a story about a young man who God has anointed. He's called. He's been separated. He comes out to visit his brothers on the battlefield. He finds out that Goliath, this massive man, this almost giant of a man standing on the battlefield, defying God's people. And Moses goes out with a slingshot and a couple of stones, and he twirls the stone. And he we kind of stop there. But what happens? Scripture tells us the stone sinks into his forehead... To the point that when Goliath falls, David takes a sword, 
chops off Goliath's head, puts it on a pole, sets it out for all the nations to see that God working amongst his people is a God, hey, that they don't play with. That God's revealing his glory in a powerful way, but even today, one of my favorites that I want to talk about is Zacchaeus. When we look at Zacchaeus, you probably say, man, I've heard this message a thousand times. I mean, really, Zacchaeus, is there really any more we could really learn about? I mean, we understand that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to, for the father he wanted to see. And, you know, we, we can sing those. It comes to us, and it seems almost silly. And you're saying to yourself, I really know everything there is to know about Zacchaeus. I mean, I mean hey, husband, you think we should get out of here early and maybe get to... Get to the buffet before everybody else. I mean, Zacchaeus. What's there really to talk about with Zacchaeus? This morning, I want to have you join me in the book of Luke chapter 19. Because I want to look at Zacchaeus one more time in a way that maybe brings a different light, a different perspective on this powerful, powerful illustration of a moment in time in which Jesus had an encounter with a man. That Here in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, it says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead of the crowd and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry down, for today I must stay at your house. The gospel is a scandalous declaration. The true message in the gospel of Jesus Christ is a scandalous declaration that to the brokenhearted, to the lost, to the hurting, it brings a tremendous hope. And to the religious, it brings nothing but frustration and irritation. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is declared in the life of this man Zacchaeus. But it didn't just start here. You know, what's taking place in this moment, actually, we begin to see developing all the way back in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. And here back in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, we begin to see that Jesus is already beginning a pattern where he's displaying this, this fellowship, this, this desire to be with those that in Luke 15, 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And in this moment, we begin to see that this gets completely lost on us in our cultural context. This gets completely lost on us in our understanding of a Western culture that when we look at the fact that he was fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners, we don't understand the real weight and the real hatred that was present at this time for those that saw this taking place. For those that witnessed Jesus hanging out with people they deemed as sinners, with those they saw as tax collectors, the weight and the hatred of this moment is so intense that it moves far beyond a children's song. It moves far beyond the understanding that probably many of you, if you grew up in the church and you read about Zacchaeus, we were taught growing up that Zacchaeus was hated because as a tax collector, you know, Rome would tell him to take $30 for income and he would take 50 and tax collectors were hated because they would, they would take money for themselves above and beyond what the, the government of Rome would ask them to take. But what was the truth behind all that? See, way back then, I mean, I have to get a history book. It's amazing in my household how my son thinks that I was there and witnessing this kind of history. 
he talks about the 80s being way back there, you know, and some of you are like, 80s? I don't, I don't even know what the 80s look like. You know, so for Seth and, and I, when we talk about these things, he thinks I have this firsthand knowledge, but you have to begin to look at history in its context in a way that even this week in our Philippian study, Matt Chandler deals with this a little bit, and I want to dive in even a little deeper. But what it looked like in the first century here, that a tax collector, this went way beyond thievery. This went way beyond money. Because you begin to understand that Israel at this time is ruled by Rome. And Rome now had, a, had an empire that stretched all the way from England to India. And as you get your mind around the geography of what this really looks like, as Rome ruled from India to England, it ruled in such a way that it doesn't look like an HBO special or a TV special where today we look at Rome and it almost seems sexy. It almost seems high class. It seems like something that, that you and I would look at and it's almost admirable, but understand Rome was a ruthless, ruthless, ruthless government. In Rome at this point in time, what they would do in occupying a new land or a new city, what this looked like is them moving in, taking over, and, and just going to a local library, moving outside of our, our Christianity or our understanding of, of Christian history. If you were to just go to a local library, pull a book off about the Roman Empire. And you'll see that there are occasions in which they entered in to occupy a city and they would slaughter and torture 35 to 40,000 men, women, and children. Why? Because when they would occupy a city, what they would do is they would erect a statue of Caesar. And in erecting a statue of Caesar in the commonplace or a marketplace, there was an understanding that as they lifted this statue, there would come a point in which the people of that city or that town would be expected to bow down and worship at the foot of that statue. And now all of a sudden it begins to look a little bit like our Old Testament with who? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And see, the Jews are part of these cultures and part of these towns and these cities and understanding as a proud people, as a people that believed they were set apart, they were called to be a God's holy nation, that when the Jews in these cultures wouldn't bow down to the statue that was erected, they'd slaughter them. And not just slaughter them. You see accounts of the Roman government taking citizens outside the walls of their city and they were crucifying them. They were impaling them. Children, women, husbands, old and young. And they would leave them for days for people to understand the consequence of not bowing down to the statues of Caesar that they believed were like God's. How do you police this? I mean, look at this. In today's culture, it's hard for us to imagine because if something happened in Colorado 100 years ago, what would happen is the, the U.S. government in Washington, D.C., if there was something taking place in a state far removed from there, what they would do is once giving, hearing word of it, they would dispatch an army or a troop of soldiers and they would travel and walk and march for a month, maybe two months before arriving to address the issue at hand. Nowadays, it's a press of a button. It's a simple phone call, and soldiers are mustered or airplanes are scrambled, and they're dealing with it in a moment's notice. But in the first century, how would you police a, a landmass that would go from India to England? It was a massive, massive army. A massive 
army that would be in places in moments notice to police and, and to deal with the issues at hand. And how would they fund it? Through taxes. And now understanding what Zacchaeus is seeing in this culture, in this contest, is that Zacchaeus in this moment is seen by the Jewish people. Because realize, Zacchaeus is a Jew who has paid Rome for the right to tax his own people so that the suppression and the oppression of the Roman government could continue to slaughter his own people. Wait a minute. I mean, there's, there's no modern-day equivalent to this. I mean, thinking about this over the last couple of weeks, I realized that for us to get it in our head that one of our neighbors, as an American citizen, would be taking my money as a tax to give to a foreign government so that they could continue to slaughter my family, to torture my children, to torture my church family, to torture those that I called friends, that Zacchaeus was doing this in a way that you and I have no ability to comprehend the hatred that the people had when they saw Zacchaeus. See, as a religious man, people in this crowd that they gathered around to see Jesus, as a religious man seeing Zacchaeus, seeing him running down the road, he may be seeing a man that just two towns over paid for the fact that they killed his wife. They slaughtered his children. They crucified his parents. When they saw Zacchaeus, it went far beyond, hey, you took an extra 20 for yourself. Hey, dude, you, you took more from me than you're supposed to. They were enraged. They were enraged. And this morning, if we had the opportunity for us to have kind of this Oprah-esque environment where we had a, a chair and a sofa up here and we invited Zacchaeus to come out here and we got a chance to interview him and as he comes out and sits down or he comes out and goes ah, on the couch, you know, and some of you will get that in about five minutes. It's okay, really. And, and Zacchaeus were to sit down, and in this moment, we had a chance to just talk to him about this encounter on the day that he met Christ. I believe one of the first things that Zacchaeus would truly say is that he saw me. He saw me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Look with me closer again at verse 5 when it says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stay in your house. See, the truth here is Jesus wanted to see Zacchaeus. I like how the New King James or even the Old King James, James translate this verse. It says that Zacchaeus, or it says, when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and saw him. He looked up and saw him. That we see in this moment kind of this divine encounter that's very similar to what we see in John 4 4 when it says he had to go through Samaria. Could have gone another way, but he chose to go through Samaria. Why? Because there was an encounter that day that needed to happen in a divine aspect of God's desire for that woman at the well. That I believe is no different than this moment with Zacchaeus as he's looking down from in this tree. 
And we understand in Samaria, it's all biblical history after that, that her life has changed and the community is affected. And here we have Zacchaeus being seen and being called to come down. But what did Jesus really see? What did Jesus really see? Do you see a tax collector? Do you see a sinner? I mean, most of us would say, well, of course he saw a sinner because we're all sinners and we know that we've all sinned and not in the first century. See, in the first century, sinners were considered a class of people. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they didn't see themselves as sinners. Sinners were a class of people. We see that revealed in John, and there in Luke 15, verse 1, where it says, the sinners and the tax collectors, where they have a differentiating perspective on the crowd that was with Jesus at that moment. And in the first century, sinners were a class of people that were that way because of either deformity or because of a, of a job that would consider them unclean. If you've ever traveled to India, it's very different than our culture. We don't understand it, but even in India today, there's a class system in place that for a beggar, a beggar understands that they will always be a beggar. There's no high school, there's no college, there's no education that allows them to move beyond being a beggar. They realize that born a beggar, you'll always be a beggar. And when one beggar gets together with another beggar and they have a child, they may have a completely healthy child completely normal child, but what will they do to it? They will maim that child. They will gouge that child's eyes out. They will break the back of that child. Why? Because they want to make it a more effective beggar. It's about survival. And here in this moment, when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, he is surrounded by sinners. And so in this culture, what's taking place, that Zacchaeus, this context, is one of tax collectors of sinners. That it's an audience of people that are deformed, that are maimed, that are hurting, that are angry. And then there's Zacchaeus, who we have a hatred towards. This was a kind of environment that you and I today would be very uncomfortable for our children to be present you would see this crowd. It had to have a smell. It had to be dirty. It had to be almost mob-like. The Zacchaeus in this moment is being ushered to come down. But what's so interesting here? When he speaks to Zacchaeus and he's calling him down and we see there again in Luke 5, 15, 1 that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near that, man, in the moment when the true gospel is being presented. It's amazing who will, man, who will come from all walks of life to hear a real gospel message. Regardless of culture, regardless of crowd, regardless of the, the circumstance, there's a crowd. Tax collectors and sinners, they were all around. We see it as well earlier in Jesus' earthly ministry where the scribes said, hey, Jesus, when they saw that crippled man, they said, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because he was crippled, because he was deformed or maimed in some way, they didn't associate it with something that happened because of a, a, an action. They associated it because of the class of citizen that this man was. Who sinned, him or his parents? See, the thing is, is that Jesus didn't see a tax collector. Jesus didn't see an occupation in that tree. Jesus didn't see a man that was hated by those around him. Jesus saw a heart. 
of a man that needed to know forgiveness. Jesus didn't see him the same way that you and I would. Jesus didn't see him the way the crowd saw him. Jesus didn't see a role. He saw his heart. And if we had the chance this morning, I believe if Zacchaeus was sitting here with us, he would not only say that he saw me, I believe he would declare that he welcomed me. He welcomed me. One of my favorite authors, he passed away a couple of months ago, the, a man by the name of Brennan Manning. Uh, he wrote one of my favorite books, and top three books probably that I've ever read, called Abba's Child. But he also wrote a book called The Ragmuffin Gospel. And in this, he talks about a man that had a sin issue in his life, and because of that sin, the church pushed him out and excommunicated him from the church. And over a season of time, this man wanted to know forgiveness. He wanted to, to find forgiveness. He wanted healing. He wanted to be able to enter back into the place that he once found Christ. And he wanted to know that he could understand true forgiveness, but the church wouldn't let him in. And Brennan writes as he talks about this man crying out to God, saying, God, all I want is to be in a place where I can know true forgiveness and true healing. And in that, Christ's response was, what are you complaining about? They won't let me in either. And one of the things that I love about our church family here at Fellowship is that you may be orphaned, you may be divorced, you may have blue hair, you may have gray hair, you may have both. You may be a child, you may be a divorcee. But you know, there's nothing more frustrating in the kingdom than for a church not to recognize that we're all sinners in need of God's grace. There's nothing more frustrating for sinners than for churches to refuse to admit they're in a desperate need of salvation. And here, the Lord Jesus informed the sinful man that he was coming to dinner. See, here's the thing. Jesus wasn't barging in. He was welcoming Zacchaeus not just to dinner, but into relationship into something that was more than just an encounter. It was more than just this, this thought, we're going to go share a meal together. He was, in, he was welcoming him into relationship. And it's where this divine hospitality gets to the heart of this man's story with Zacchaeus. And we find this is where sin and isolation meet forgiveness and grace in the story of Jesus Christ. And they intersect violently. Because in this moment, I believe Jesus was saying, hey, make yourself at home. And everything about Zacchaeus' story could revolt against this idea of forgiveness, could revolt against this idea. He could be free from the hatred of these people. And Jesus says, hey, make yourself at home. How many of you have had guests over to your house and you've used that phrase? Hey, you're in their living room, they're in your living room, and you say, hey, make yourself at home. You ever done that? Great, all six of you. So at this point... You've probably said to someone, for those of you that have a real gift of hospitality, you'll, you'll make them feel welcome, get them a drink, they'll sit in your living room and say, make yourself at home. Uh, Marlis, this Friday night, if you were to invite my family over to your house, we do like steak, and if, <laughs> if we were invited over to your house, I'm going to guess you'd sit us down in your living room, you'd be making something in the kitchen, Jeff and I would probably you know, talk a little bit, and you'd say, hey, make yourself at home. And as Marlis would say this to me, I'd sit down and say, okay, make myself at home, okay, well... I don't like her pictures. And I take this picture from that wall and I put it over here and I take that picture completely off and stick it behind the couch over here and I put a picture of myself right on her mantle. 
I'm going to guess when Marlis comes back in the room, she's going to realize there's something a little different here. And she might feel like this is kind of odd, but as she goes back in to check on dinner, I realize, you know what, I don't like the way the furniture is either. And so I take the couch from this wall, and I put it over here on this wall, and that chair, I put it back over here in this corner, and I don't really want the TV in the room at all, so I just go stick it back in another room. And when Marlis comes back in the room, I'm going to guess there's a problem. But while she speaks to Jeff, I decide to go in the kitchen, and it's like, you know what, I like a little more salt and a little more pepper, and I start putting seasonings that I like into the food. And I'm going to guess at this point in time, the only conversation she wants to have is with Jeff when she says, you and I need to go speak. And in that moment, when her and Jeff step out to go speak, I see her keys laying on the kitchen counter to her car. I decide, hey, you know what? I haven't ridden in her car before. I'm going to go give it a test spin. So I go out in the garage. I get in the garage. I lift up the door, and off for a little ride I go. I'm going to guess after about five or ten minutes of riding her car, I'm going to pull up to their driveway, and I'm going to encounter Marla standing there saying, you are now more than welcome to leave. (laughs) Because she's going to be done. But see, here's the reality. Zacchaeus was saying to Jesus, make yourself at home. And when you and I came into a relationship with Christ, and we said as Jesus comes in and he takes up residency in our life, he begins to make himself at home in a way that he begins to rip some things out that he has no desire to be part of our life. And he begins to move some things around in our heart and in our mind, in our actions, in our ways, in our lives, in our families. And as he begins to move these things around, we realize, hey, this is a lot more uncomfortable than I ever anticipated. This isn't what I signed up for. I, I didn't realize he was going to uproot some of these things I've held on to for so long. And he was going to begin to separate me from relationships that I thought I had to have. And I was, they were dear to me. And he began to move things around to a point I said, hey, oh Jesus, I didn't sign up for this. And he's saying, but I came to make myself at home. And what happened in this moment, Jesus and Zacchaeus had a moment that we continue to read about in Luke 19, verse 7. And it says, but when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. I find it interesting. Who else could Jesus have eaten with? Scripture's declaration to us is that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinful people. We're all broken in some context. We're all broken in some way or another. And this was a pattern that we see being lived out that even going back into chapter 15, in verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled about it. They were saying this man receives sinners. Not just receives them but eats with them. Now, if you step back into historical context, what were they really saying? They were actually making an indictment on Christ. Because understand that the people that Jesus was having fellowship with, that he was sharing a meal with, were people that would never see the inside of the temple. They would never be allowed to sit with the Pharisees and the scribes and and hear the teaching in the temple. These people were considered so unclean that they would never have an opportunity to be where they thought Jesus wanted to be. So what were they saying about Christ? Well, Jesus, you know what? If you're going to have fellowship with the unclean, then you yourself are alienated and separated from God, which to me he has to chuckle at. Jesus has to sit back and he's like, yeah, y'all didn't hear me the first time because you remember my father and I are one. 
And in this moment, they were making an accusation against Christ that he himself was being alienated from the very God that he was teaching about. Not only do I believe Zacchaeus would tell us that Jesus saw him, Jesus welcomed him, I believe he'd also say that Jesus changed me. Jesus changed me. Now, when you think about change, I mean, we know what change looks like. If you were to take your car to go get the oil changed, uh, they'd take your car, they'd put it up on the rack, they'd take the old oil out, and they'd put new oil in, right? Pretty simple. Uh, around the Bushonic household, we know what it looks like to change a diaper. You take an old diaper off, you put a new diaper on. Uh, in the Bushonic house, we know what it looks like to change behavior. Well, I grew up in a home where my father was really good at trying to change behavior. I mean, I grew up in a home where my father and I had a very clear understanding. I keep acting the way I want, and he keeps spanking, okay? And so that was kind of the agreement we had going on to the point that my dad, as an evangelist, when he would go to a revival and he would speak at a church, he would use me as so many sermon teaching illustrations that in one place he went to, there was a man there that owned a fiberglass company. And he decided to send my, bat, my dad back with a little, to, a little uh, tool. And when my dad got home, he pulled out this long piece of fiberglass that had been drilled into the shape of a paddle. And there were holes drilled into it. And on the bottom, it had inscribed on it, thy rod and staff. <laughs> I probably need to write a letter asking for forgiveness to that man somewhere because I came to really dislike that paddle. But see, here's the thing. In my house, because my dad understood he had to change behavior, there were moments that because of my attitude or because of my actions that I can think back to the yellow station wagon. Anybody have that yellow station wagon with the wood paneling on the side? Uh-huh. Yeah, we had it. Yeah, and in that, we would have, uh, you know, as the youngest of four, the three get in the back seat, and who was left? Me. So I had to sit in the very back, and that big window that would roll down in the back, well, we had a big old German shepherd. And so that German shepherd would go with us, and here I'd have him breathing in one face, in one side of my face, and in the back you just have the exhaust. Whoever designed that, the exhaust just pouring into the back of that station wagon. And so after a few moments, after some time, you get a little loopy when you, when you just continue to breathe this in to the point where my brothers and sisters in front of me, you know, you touch them. Stop touching me. There's a line drawn there. I'm not touching you. I'm coming right up to the line, but I'm not touching you. And Dad's screaming from the front, Son, do you need me to stop this car? Well, yeah, eventually, Dad. <laughs> you getting smart with me, son? No, Dad, two plus two is five. You know, and at this moment, Dad would slam on the brakes, and I remember as I'd pull my face out of the seat that I just crashed into, and I'd look up, there would be my mom saying, Run, Forrest, run! <laughs> and my dad was constantly trying to change my behavior. When you think about it, that's not what Jesus was doing with Zacchaeus. This wasn't about changing his behavior. This was about a heart change. See, in Zacchaeus' story, Jesus is welcoming sinners, but look at what the welcome of Jesus did to his heart. And there in Luke 19, verse 6, it says, So he made haste, came down, and what? Received him joyfully. This is unrestrained joy in the response to God's offering of grace. And when we preach grace, we really unleash this gospel of salvation that only comes through our faith by His grace, not our works. It's not about us correcting our behavior, but us understanding the need for a heart change in relationship with the King. 
Because see, when the real gospel message of grace, of mercy, is preached, those that are broken and those that are hurting, those that are lost, those that are seeking something different, they'll start falling out of trees left and right to get to it. They'll start surrounding that message in crowds. This was, the, this was the MO of Christ. I mean, Christ, where was he headed at this point in time? He was headed to Golgotha to be crucified for your sin and my sin. He was already headed to the resting place that he would know where he would rise again. But yet he still wasn't too busy to have an encounter with the person of Zacchaeus. No more than he is today too busy to have an encounter with you and me. No more busy than he was. And in this moment, he's saying, hurry down. And he commits one of the most social pafos of all times, which only Jesus could commit a pafo because there's no such thing. He committed a faux pas in breaking down a social cultural barrier. I don't know how you do a pofa, okay? I just don't. Jesus probably could tell you, I just can't, okay? But in committing this faux pas, he addressed a culture by saying, regardless of class, regardless of, of role, regardless of position, regardless of your employment, you have the right to know forgiveness. You have the right to understand fellowship. You, you have to understand that you are my creation and I care deeply about you. But in this process, when he says, hey, Zacchaeus, hurry down. I think this is a funny image in Scripture to me. Why? Because we know he's rich. Verse 1 tells us that he was rich. We, we see that this man is a man of wealth. He's a man of pro, uh, uh, prominence. And here he is up on a branch. And if you know sycamore trees, not a lot of low-lying branches. So here's a man that's probably dressed pretty immaculately. He's got fine linen on. He's got a robe that's probably flowing. And here he is having to hug a tree and scale down quickly to get to Jesus. But don't forget the crowd. I mean, this crowd had to have a smell to it. This crowd had to have a, an attitude about it as it's full of people that are maimed and crippled and people that are hurting and they're angry because of where life has them. And it's full of people that have been cast out by society and they're seeing this man. That man, the man that maybe to a religious man, Zacchaeus was responsible for killing a family two towns over for killing their child or their wife two towns over. This is the crowd, the audience that's around the bottom of this tree as Zacchaeus hurries down to meet with Jesus. This is probably a crowd that you and I would be very uncomfortable letting our children be present in. That you and I would feel very uncomfortable being present because of the uncertainty of what just might happen. Hurry down, Zacchaeus. Hey, folks, understand, Jews never told a Roman official to hurry to do anything. And here Zacchaeus is hearing the word of Christ, and he begins to hurry down. That in verse 8 it says, Zacchaeus stopped. Now, wait a minute. Stopped what? Coming down the tree? No. We see a dispensation of time, a period of time that's taking place between verse 7 and verse 8. Because look at verse 7 one more time. In verse 7, it says here that Zacchaeus, when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone 
to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. He has left the crowd. He has moved away. And now we see Zacchaeus and Christ moving away from this crowd on the way to his house. And Zacchaeus in this moment says, stop. He stops the Lord and says, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And half that I've defrauded, any one of anything, I'll give back four times as much. So there's been a conversation taking place that this heart change is already beginning to take effect, that this reality of forgiveness has already begun to be ushered into his life. That it wasn't a behavior change. It was a heart change that was producing an action that would bring honor to his Lord. But in this moment, we realize as well, that my dad taught me growing up that, Corey, we really never are on good ground when we're questioning someone's salvation. But my dad also used to teach me, and he says, Son, where there is no fruit, you must question the root. And if there's no fruit being displayed in your life or my life that would bring honor to our God, if there's no life change that we recognize that part of our past that has been, that has been like Zacchaeus, that's been oppressive or has been hurtful, it's been filled with hatred toward a people or a person, we recognize that as Christ begins to take residency and make himself at home, he begins to draw us to a place of changing our actions and changing our behavior and changing our way of life. Why? To bring him glory. To bring him honor. And in this moment, Zacchaeus is saying, hey, whatever I've done, whether to the poor or to someone that I've taken from or defrauded, I'll give it back and give it back four times over. But what does real heart change look like? I mean, a lot of us, we can talk about heart change and it'll preach. I mean, we, a lot of pulpits this morning across this country will talk about heart change, but what does that really look like? What does that really mean? Well, what it means is that I begin to understand that my emotions... My emotions, well, my emotions begin to affect my decisions. My decisions begin to affect my actions. My actions begin to affect my habits. My habits begin to affect my convictions. My convictions, they ultimately determine my destination. As habits, I understand my emotions as they begin to affect the decisions I make. Then the decisions I make begin now to affect the actions I take. And the actions I take now begin to affect the character within my life. And my character, as I begin to live that out, affects my convictions. And my convictions determine my destination. And Christ not only wanted to deal with my emotions, he wanted to deal with my destination. And everything in between that, he is moving in my life and he's changing things and he's drawing me into deeper relationship with him as he welcomes me for me to understand the destination he has for my life is glorious. It's good. It's filled with joy and hope and peace. Why? Because it's rooted in him. And in verse 9 it says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. Salvation has come to this house. And at this point, Jesus is now ushering this affectionate call. We see it throughout all the New Testament. I mean, think about these affectionate calls. Uh, we see it even though it was a painful one. We saw it with Nicodemus. Hey, go sell everything you have and come follow me. It's a hard call. 
The call to the disciples, hey, go, give, go and leave your nets behind and leave your families and come and follow me. It was an affectionate call. We see it even with Peter when Jesus, and I love how even Matt Chandler this week in our study said, you know, when, when, when Jesus asked Peter, do you agape me? And Peter said, yes, I phileo you, Lord. Well, Peter, do you really love me? Yeah, Lord, I love you like a brother. And why was this affectionate call so important when he would say, do you agape me? And his response was, I phileo you, Lord, is that he understood in the midst of this calling, it would ultimately lead to the realities of Peter living out his life that would bring his death because of that affectionate call. And Christ's calling to you and his calling to me is an affectionate one, but it's one that's filled with purpose. Because we see in verse 10 the theme, the thesis of the entire New Testament. Really, the entire Word of God. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. To seek and to save that which was lost. I mean, Jesus could have come with judgment. Jesus could have come with anger. Jesus could have come with condemnation. And He could have come with a fury. But instead, He came with grace and mercy. I say, Corey, I I hear those terms. I know grace. I, I hear mercy. But what does that really mean? Well, I'm going to guess no one in this room has ever been pulled over by a police officer. (laughs) Not the response you're looking for, okay? As everybody laughs about that, you realize that if a police officer were to come up to your window after he's pulled you over, he's going to come up, he's going to knock. License registration, please. You're going to give him your license registration. If a police officer were to come back to your window and say, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm not going to give you a ticket today, but I need you to slow down. What did he do? He just demonstrated mercy. He just said, hey, you deserve it, I'm just not, you're, I'm not giving it to you. you. Just slow down, be on your way. For some reason, women are a lot better about that than the guys are. You know? I've never been let out of a ticket like that before, but I hear all these stories. But if a police officer were to walk up to your window, license registration, please. Walks back to his vehicle, comes back to yours with a ticket in hand. And he were to lean into your window and say, hey, I've written up a ticket for you. It's going to cost you $160 because you're speeding. But I want you to know, I'm not only not going to give you this ticket, but I'm going to take money from my own pocket and I'm going to pay for it for you. You and I would sit back and say, where are the cameras? I have got to be on TV at this point because that doesn't happen. And Jesus was saying to Zacchaeus, hey, you know what? I understand you're a sinful person, but I'm going to pay a price for you that you could never pay on your own. And I'm going to take care of this issue of forgiveness in your life like no one throughout humanity and throughout history has ever been able to but me as the Son of God. And this morning that message is no different for us. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking Christ, that Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. When in reality this was all about Jesus wanting to see him. It's no different for us today. Our God, our Lord, our Savior is desiring to have an intimacy with you through fellowship to where He can truly see you. Not who you are or what you do or what your position may be, but see the heart of who you are. And in seeing that heart, welcoming you into divine relationship with Him and an intimacy with Him in such a way He can begin to produce change in your life that will bring Him glory. I think that's the true story of Zacchaeus. 
It moves beyond a childhood song. It moves beyond just an elementary understanding because this is a, a, point, in, a point in time, a, a story in history that illustrates the heart and character of a good God. A God that loves us intimately.